HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill, employee-owned and operated, and founded on the principle of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the membership coordinator at Heritage Radio Network, but even before I joined the team, I loved listening to HRN during my subway commute. It made the time go quickly and left me feeling inspired for the day ahead. HRN listeners tune in from all over the world, but there are a few traits that we all have in common, no matter where we listen from. A curious palate, the fierceness to make a difference, and a hunger for lifelong learning about the culinary world. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported nonprofit. To deliver the most ambitious, entertaining, and of-the-moment stories in 2018, we need your help. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to accomplish these goals and to keep your favorite shows on the air. Together, we can make this HRN's most exciting, impactful, and delicious year yet. No matter how much you choose to give, you'll feel awesome next time you tune in, knowing that we wouldn't be here without you. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate, and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to HRN events, where you will mix and mingle with your favorite hosts. Plus, we have great member swag. Show off your HRN pride with a t-shirt or keep your hands safe in the kitchen with an HRN potholder. Memberships also make a perfect holiday gift for all the foodies in your life. This year, why not give the gift of food radio? You'll hear your generosity in action for the year to come. Help keep our lights on and our mics hot by pledging your support today at heritageradionetwork.org donate. Thanks for listening. Oh, yeah, it's Monday. It's What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, 
And we are broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, from the Heritage Radio Network. And today we're going to be talking about um, young farmers. And my guest is Julie Obudzinski. Julie, you'll tell me if I said that wrong. She is the Deputy Policy Director for the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, which is a national nonprofit organization based in Washington, D.C. And since 2011, Julie has led the coalition's federal policy work related to beginning farmers, focusing on the complex agricultural policy issues of how to improve new farmer access to capital, land, markets, and crop insurance. Obudzinski recently co-authored the first ever comprehensive evaluation of USDA's beginning farmer and rancher development program in order to better understand and communicate to policymakers and the general public the impact that this program has had on growing the next generation of farmers, a truly essential aspect of life going forward. Um, Obudzinski has a background in agriculture and food policy, and she holds degrees from the University of Wisconsin and Tufts University. So she is a well-educated woman. Pay attention. Get out your notebooks. Hi, Julie. (laughs) Hi, Katie. Pleasure to be here. (laughs) Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I like to beat up my listeners. You know, they they expect it from me. (laughs) So we are going to be talking about the Beginning Farmer and Rancher Development Program, and I want you to give um, the listeners a little bit of a sense, because it's been around for a while, a little bit of a sense of what the program is and what it's, you know, sort of how it was developed and what the goals are. Yeah, so this program, um, it truly is um, a -a one-of-a-kind program. It still remains to this day the only federal program that is exclusively dedicated to training the next generation of farmers. Mm. Um, it has been around for a while. Uh, Congress actually uh, created the program back in 2002 with the 2002 Farm Bill um, with the recognition that more needed to be done to ensure the stability and success of the next generation of farmers. Um, unfortunately, it took us a, a little while to get funding for the program, so we finally got funding back in 2008 which means that the program has been around now for nearly a decade. Mm. Um, And part of what we did in this evaluation, um, now that the program needs to be reauthorized in the 2018 Farm Bill, which is on the horizon coming up next year, um, we thought that it was time to look at what are the investments um, that we've been making as taxpayers. This is a federal program, so it comes from taxpayer dollars. What are the investments that we've been making in training new farmers, and what is the return on federal investments? Um, So we looked at the impact that this program has had since it was created um, and programs were first getting off the ground um, starting in 2008. Incredible. And so, and so what were the impacts? Like what, how much money have you spent? I think it was about 150 million. Is that right? Yeah. So to date, the program has invested nearly $145 million and this has gone into almost 300 projects that have been funded in nearly every single state in the country. Um, We are actually awaiting the announcement of the newest rounds of grantees coming soon. Um, And so we found, we looked at um, a a portion of those projects, those ones that had been completed that actually had outcomes to report to understand what the impacts have been. And we reached three primary conclusions in terms of what is the return on investment for this program. Mm -hmm. Um, The first is this program has absolutely been successful in meeting the mandate that Congress has set out in the the 2008 authorizing legislation. Um, It is helping to grow the next generation of farmers. And I know um, this is a question that I get all the time is how many farmers are being trained through this program? Is it actually making a difference? Um, We have a lot of good data in the report that we looked at that shows, yes, in fact, this program through the projects that we looked at is absolutely making a difference, is training new farmers. 
Um, and then the third conclusion that I think gets a little overlooked when, when people focus on, especially the return on taxpayer investment, everybody wants to know, what are the numbers of farmers trained? We need 100,000 new farmers per year. Um, BFRDP really has been a game changer in terms of building a national infrastructure and new models and best practices for how do we actually train and support new farmers best? What are some of the innovative ways that we need to be thinking about training the next generation who um, are, are going to be looking very differently than folks that came before them and folks that are farming now and thinking about retirement, um, looking at really what are the most effective ways to be training new farmers? Fascinating. So now let's start with how do you guys get to decide, you know, how do you decide who gets to participate? How do you find the young people and evaluate them um, so that they can become part of one of the projects that you work on? Because it sounded like you have, you have about 300 projects, I think you said, or have had. Yeah. So, um, so stepping back a little bit, so um, the program, it's run as a competitive national program. Um, so it's actually administered by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. It's the National Institute of Food and Agriculture is the authorizing agency mm -hmm. that makes these grants. So organizations that work with new farmers, um, let's say that they want to apply for grant funding, so they put in an application to USDA to, to essentially say, I have this great project, I have this idea, I'd like to train new farmers. Um, and so, you know, ultimately it's up to whoever that organization is in terms of who they want their target audience to be. So we looked at a lot of projects in our evaluation of different organizations working with different communities. We know that every farmers look different. They farm differently. They grow different things. There's different markets depending on yeah. where you are across the country. Um, so, you know, for example, um, there's one project that we looked at that was funded out in California that they were seeing a lot of um, immigrant labor and folks that were farm workers that were aspiring to become farm managers. That was the specific type of farmer that they were focusing on because they saw that need and they saw that opportunity within their farming community. Um, so, so it very much is up to the individual organizations um, that are proposing these projects of how best to reach these farmers in their community and what is the need. Um, and so, so that is first and foremost kind of, um, you know, it's, it's a very flexible program. Um, the other thing that I would mention is there, um, it is a competitive process. So organizations need to apply to USDA, have to, you know, kind of um, dot their I's, cross their T's, get, it, get everything aligned so that they do have a project um, that is really selling a story of, of what is the need. Um, and then it's up to, you know, the competitive process to evaluate which ones, um, you know, which ones are the, the most valuable programs that we need to be investing taxpayer dollars in, and it is, I mean, demand for this program is high. Really? Um, it's a very difficult decision to, to try to turn down and try to, you know, what are the, t the top proposals that um, deserve funding through this program? Yeah, I would think so. Now, <clears throat> one of the things that I thought was cool is that I, I think you said about 25% of the projects went towards <clears throat> focusing on, um, you know, there's an actual term for this, which I'm, I'm blanking on, but women, people of color, immigrants, refugees, you know, how do you, how do you break out, you know, how to assign to those groups? Are, are those, are there, I guess my question is, is there are specific groups within those demographics that come forward with a project that they think would be helpful to say women farmers or, uh, you know, Latino farmers or, or any other specific uh, ethnic or, or demographic? Yeah, um, so I think the term that you were looking for, and it's a it's a very um, arcane congressional definition, socially disadvantaged farmers. That yes, is that's the, the term. Statutory, 
that um, socially disadvantaged. Yeah, that is the 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 you know I guess politically correct uh, statutory definition um, for how in, in law how we define um, you know a, a different communities of farmers that have had less access right. to federal programs specifically. Um, so included in socially disadvantaged farmers would be um, women farmers. We know that most of the farmers in this country, at least those that are reporting on the census tend to identify as male. Uh, we know that women certainly do play a very, very important role in farming and have always played an important role in farming, but mm. in terms of those that are the principal operator, um, women definitely are are, um, are a smaller population than men. So women are considered socially disadvantaged. Um, farmers of color, ethnic minorities, tribal communities, mm. um, immigrants, refugees, um, those are all considered, you know, in, it is a statutory definition, so it is defined in law. Um, so we looked at, in our evaluation, we did want to know how many of these projects are serving those underserved communities. Right. And there actually was, under the 2008 legislation, there was a requirement in law that this program focus at least 25% of the total funds to serve these communities. Right. So that is something that we, we wanted to hold this program accountable and see is it actually doing what Congress said it should do and be ensuring that those folks have access to resources. Um, and what we found is that in total, over half of all projects that we looked at um, focused on these socially disadvantaged farmer categories. Um, oh. That included some of the numbers. Um, it included nearly 26,000 women, um, over 19,000 farmers of color, 3,000 immigrants. And then we also looked at veterans, which there's mm. been a lot of talk, um, especially within the beginning farmer community, at how do we improve the connections for military veterans, a lot of them who are coming from rural communities that are coming from farm backgrounds. Um, a lot of them, as they return, are looking to agriculture, both as a therapeutic, um, you know, career option to integrate, you know, back into civilian life. Um, so there has been a, a renewed interest in looking at, you know, we, we need new farmers and veterans yeah. are coming back. A lot of them have a lot of great skills in terms of serving their country. Um, and, and so there were, we looked at um, those projects as well, and there were about a thousand um, veterans that had been trained under the time that we looked at. Um, uh -huh. So there's certainly, there's a lot of projects out there. Um, you know, the, the need is certainly high. Um, so I think that's something that we're going to be looking at, especially if this program is to continue, which that there is an if, it is not yeah. guaranteed. If this program continues in the next Farm Bill, making sure that, that those communities continue to have access to this funding. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's just roll it back for a second and and, and tell us something about the principal challenges uh, for a beginning farmer or rancher, I mean, is it is it primarily financial? Is it educational? Understanding markets, um, you know, what are what are the biggest issues that young people who want to go into farming face? I mean, some of them must have gone through ag school, right, or some sort of extension program, or are you using are you working with people who just say, oh, I want to be a farmer, and you know, somebody teach me? Like, what are yeah, what are the big it's things? All, it's all of the above. <laughs> um, I mean, there's certainly. Um, there are so many different types of folks that are interested in farming today, and I think that that's a really important distinction. Um, and some folks, you know, they, they classify, you know, you've got a first-generation farmer versus a, a farmer that, um, an aspiring farmer that's coming from a farm background. Right. Um, obviously, the challenges are very, very different depending on which demographic you're talking about. If you're if you're talking about somebody um, that is a first-generation farmer has no connections to land, knowledge, hasn't grown up alongside 
a mentor to teach them the ropes of farming, which is very, very knowledge intensive. Um, you, you know, you are starting from square one. And yeah. I would say, um, regardless of whether or not you're a first-generation farmer or you've grown, grown up on a farm family, um, access to affordable and desirable farmland. I go across the country all the time. I talk to new farmers. I talk to our members. And I ask, what are the number one issues? And, and access to land remains the number one issue. It was the, the number one issue in the last farm bill. It remains the number one issue. Mm-hmm. Um, land prices are high no yeah. matter where you go. Even if, I mean, if you're in the Corn Belt in the Midwest, if you are um, you know, near an urban center on the East Coast, if you're you know, looking to do organic out in the Central Valley, um, every single, it seems like every single state, every single region has its own story in terms of what are the challenges to accessing and finding and affording land. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is absolutely number one issue. And especially, I mean, that, that barrier is compounded if you are a first-generation farmer. Um, if you're a young farmer, if you don't have assets to be able to afford to purchase land, if you're going to be um, competing with more established farmers that can outbid you at an auction, um, if you don't even have, I mean, sometimes I hear, you know, land doesn't even go on the market. It's, you know, it's word of mouth. And if yeah. you're not tied into those communities, that land is being sold to the neighbor and that neighbor's farm is getting bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're not going to have a chance as a young farmer coming into that community. Um, so there are, I mean, access to land, number one issue. Um, another thing that I hear all the time which is completely tied to access to land, is being able to have equitable access to financial capital. Yeah. So, again, you know, if, if you do not have land, if you cannot find land, you are not going to farm. Um, even, if it, you know, even if it's in an urban setting, like you, you need some sort of land to be able to farm just because of the inherent nature of farming. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we'll be looking at in the next Farm Bill is making sure that loan programs, which have historically been so, so important, especially federal loan programs through USDA, in making sure that if a farmer, if a young aspiring farmer goes to a bank and a bank is like, I'm not taking a risk on you, you're a new business, a new farm, um, you know, I I can't do this, Mm -hmm. um, that there is a lender of last resort, or as USDA says, lender of first opportunity, (laughs) to give that farmer their first loan so they can buy, you know, a piece of property or buy a tractor or you know, operating expenses. Um, and those programs are going to be under threat in the next Farm Bill in terms of who has access um, to federal loan funding. Yeah, I can imagine. Absolutely. You know, Julie, let's take a quick sponsor drop here, and then we'll come right back uh, and talk a little bit about the kinds of farming education that your program is offering. Stay tuned. Great. I'm Mike Calameco, host of Food Talk on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm here with Bob Moore, founder of Bob's Red Mill, as well as Ray and Tom Williams, who've worked with Bob for years and co-own an organic farm in eastern Oregon and Washington. Ray, Tom, why is organic farming so important to your family? It's all a matter of the soil as a source of nutrients. You increase organic matter of the soil, you increase the water holding capacity, water is becoming increasingly scarce. So in terms of sustainability, we don't think it's the only answer, but it's one answer, and it's the answer that we're trying to pursue. It's been a challenge, and it's been fun, because it it is different, and we're learning how to do it for the last 10-plus years. We're not just doing organic. We're doing organic to high standards. Bob, why did you choose to partner with Ray and Tom? Oh, goodness, Bob, because they're the best farmers in Oregon, and they're close, and they have a bunch of acres, I think about 10,000, over in in eastern Oregon and Washington. They're wonderful farmers, and their family have been farmers over there uh, for many, many years. 
it's really important that you have long-term relationships, and we've enjoyed a long-term relationship with Bob's because there are a lot of challenges to organic farming. You simply don't have as many tools as a conventional farmer, and so you have to rely on longer-term solutions. Knowing that you have a market is absolutely critical. The margins in farming are not that great, so if you grow the stuff and you can't sell it, you have a real problem. And we know with Bob's that we have a market, and uh, we turn out high-quality grains, and they buy them, and it all works well. Learn more about Bob's Red Mill and their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. We are um, back with Julie uh, Obudzinski, who is with the, um, the Deputy Policy Director for the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition. <clears throat> and we're talking about um, the uh, USDA Beginning Farmer and Rancher Development Program which helps young and aspiring farmers get into the business uh, through a variety of educational uh, methods and projects. And so one of the things that I was wondering about is like, do you, does your, is your program able to offer um, education sort of across the farming spectrum? I mean, are there guys who specialize in livestock? I know you had some dairy projects. Um, There's got to be, you know, people who do basic commodity farming. Is that part of the program or do you focus more on sort of more niche type of farming? Or does it just depend on who the aspirant is? Yeah, so this program, we looked at grants that were funded under this program. Um, The one thing that they did have in common, most projects focused on farmers that are starting out at a small scale. Um, We did say starting out at a small scale because Mm -hmm. we have no idea where that farm is going to go in the future. Um, And it makes complete sense that you're you're starting a business. You're starting a farm. You're going to start small. Um, there were also there was also um, a pretty heavy focus on um, organic farming, uh, specialty crops, which is the again Congress likes to come up with these fantastic definitions. Specialty crops is um, anything that is not a commodity. So fruits and vegetables, nuts. Um, those sorts of things are all considered specialty crops. Right. Um, that being said, we did also find that about a quarter of projects focused on conventional commercial growers, which includes row crops, corn and beans, commodities, things like that, um, and about half of the projects focused on livestock. Mm. Um, part of why I think that this program um, does have more of an emphasis, it has more of an emphasis on livestock, on specialty crops, on small scale, um, is especially, so I go back to what we were talking about before with the first-generation farmers, um, a lot of those folks, um, to get in the door starting small, um, it is very, very difficult. If you are not from a farm family, if you don't have access to a lot of land and a lot of really, really big, expensive equipment, it is very, very difficult for a new farmer to get into commercial farming uh, in terms of commercial commodity crops. Um, You know, a lot of those, you know, a lot of that farming, it is absolutely necessary and we need we need a next generation of farmer to be taking over those farms um, a lot of those folks are you know are passed down through the family passed on to the next generation simply because the barriers to accessing and starting those types of enterprises are so huge um, you need to have a lot of land to be able to do it profitably you need to have yeah. you know expensive equipment to do it profitably um, so so an easy entry point for folks that are starting farming um, and in terms of profitability, um, specialty crops and fruits and vegetables are a very high-value crop. Um, it's something that y- you don't need a ton of acres. You can sell directly if you do want to do marketing through a farmer's market or a CSA. Um, it's a very good on-ramp in terms of um, little upfront startup costs and little infrastructure. Right. Um, 
you know, so so we did find that there were a lot of a lot of projects that focused on diversified operations, um, and livestock is also something that we found a lot of beginning farmers um, were looking at livestock, um, you know, in terms of a, a, a profitable venture. But that but that is completely tied to you need land if you're going to be doing livestock. You absolutely yeah. um, you, you do need to have the land base to do <laughs> and that. And you, you need a decent amount of infrastructure in terms of barns or houses or whatever. I mean, they can't just absolutely turn them out absolutely. on the pasture and say, "Okay, guys, see you in eight months." <laughs> yeah, and that's that's actually interesting. You brought up one of the organizations that we profile in our evaluation. Um, it's a dairy grazing apprenticeship program. It started in Wisconsin, and mm-hmm. part of uh, the conception of that apprenticeship model was that the field of dairy grazing, and, and I didn't know about it until I started researching it, the field of that is uh, less capital intensive than having, you know, a dairy infrastructure and a dairy barn and having, um, you know, acres of acres and all of this infrastructure. And so they actually found that just by having the grazing portion mm-hmm. um, of that operation, not necessarily the dairy portion and the milking and, and all, of, you know, the processing, um, but having the dairy grazing portion um, as a viable career option, especially for new farmers starting out, and especially given, you know, look at the demand, the skyrocketing demand for sustainably raised meat. Right. Um, you know, it's certainly something that, that we're going to need a next generation of farmers stepping in and, and learning from the folks that are currently doing it. Absolutely. Well, that, that brings me to my a question I had about, because your organization, um, the National Sustainable Agriculture Organ- Coalition, um, obviously supports sustainable agriculture, but a lot of what gets taught in land-grant universities and extension schools, who I understand are often your partners, um, seems to favor the methods of, you know, the last 60 years or so, um, like a concentrated animal feeding operation or intensive applications of herbs and herbicides and pesticides, um, you know, less interest in soil management and improvement or irrigation models that have to be abandoned as climate change, you know, dictates uh, differing, you know, water patterns. Um, so how, how do you steer your, your students toward the emerging best or better practices um, when for more established farmers, they're often really too risky to even contemplate? I mean, they might want to do some of those things, but it just doesn't, you know, they don't know that it's going to pan out economically for them and their margins are so low that it's, it's, it's genuinely a risk to take on a different say, irrigation type of irrigation or something like that. So how, how do you get your, your young folks to, to gravitate towards the new and the innovative um, when so many, you know, established farmers are kind of leery of new technology. Yeah, that is that is a great, absolutely great question. Um, a few answers to that. So I think one thing that is absolutely key, especially key to organizations like ours that are looking at um, sustainable agriculture and alternative production systems, you absolutely need research, education, and outreach. So if we are not doing the research on what is an alternative way to grow this type of a crop, what is a more sustainable way to grow this type of crop or a more resilient agricultural system, if you do not have the research conducted to be able to show that this is a profitable way, um, you know, what are the, I mean, every single farmer out there, you know, I, I say that they are the best researchers out there because they are yeah. experimenting every single day that they walk into a field. They're experimenting with what is the best, most, co- you know, cost-effective way for me to manage um, a disease outbreak or to manage a pest infestation. Um, you know, they are experimenting and, you know, I mean, it's, it's their bottom line, it's their business. Um, so we absolutely need to have the research to show them that these new models, these sustainable models are effective, that they mm. work. Um, and, 
you know, we, we need to be making sure that they have that access to research. And it, it's not just, it doesn't just stay on the shelf. Um, it yeah. is something that our extension professionals and, you know, I mean, every single farmer, you know who your, your county extension is and your county extension agent. Um, they're valuable, valuable resources, especially for new farmers. Um, like I said before, farming is a very knowledge-intensive business, especially yes. if you are going to be doing things, um, you know, and, and looking at a more sustainable, holistic, resilient approach where it's not just as simple as I've got a pest infestation, I'm just going to spray it with this herbicide um, or, or pesticide, mm-hmm. um, making sure that there is that knowledge infrastructure so that the farmers can understand what are the best research practices um, for dealing with this in a, in a holistic, sustainable way. Um, otherwise, if we do not, ha- if we have the, the lack of research on sustainable production systems, um, any type of farmer that is pursuing that, whether it's organic, you know, whether it's integrated pest management, um, biodynamic, whatever it is, um, they're always going to be at a disadvantage. And that's, um, you know, I mean, the, the fact of, you know, most of our research has been going into the conventional system that we have. Right. And that's something that our organization and other organizations that work with these farmers understand that you need to have the research base there. Um, one of the first programs that we actually worked on uh, at the National Sustainable Ag Coalition about 30 years ago to create um, was a program that empowered farmers to do research on their farms because they were mm-hmm. looking at the typical land-grant university research systems and seeing they are not doing the type of research that reflects the needs on my farms. Mm-hmm. Um, so something like cover crops, 30 years ago, nobody was doing cover crops. Nobody right. was researching what are the effects of, of uh, planting a cover crop? What are the research outcomes of that? Um, so we, we worked really hard and we created a farmer-driven research program called the Sustainable Agriculture Research and Extension Program that is has been around for 30 years that supports farmer-driven research, and, and those programs need to continue um, to make sure that we do have that research base so, so that we can convince, you know, folks that, that are going to be asking this, you know, um, this is a risk to take. We need to be able to reassure them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, <clears throat> I, I find it, you know, it's, it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. And I think that, you know, investing in, if you've already invested in one type of farming, then the idea of abandoning some sort form of infrastructure or some, you know, method that has worked pretty well uh, is a pretty scary proposition given the margins in farming. But so you're, pro- but you have like a mentorship program, which sounded very robust. I mean, in addition to the extension schools and the land grant universities that you partner with, you also have a lot of, I mean, to go back to say, for instance, that grazing management uh, project that you did, that was with a mentor. Um, what other kinds of mentors do you, are you able to bring on board and, and how do you compensate them for the time? Do they just do it because they're good? Yeah, um, so, I mean, it, it, um, it absolutely depends. And actually, one of the things that we found in our research and, and looking at the projects that all the organizations across the country working with new farmers is um, what are the established best practices on how you train new farmers? Mm-hmm. So that was one of the key conclusions that I mentioned before about uh, this program being a game changer in terms of the national infrastructure of best practices um, and really bringing along the sophistication of how do you train new farmers. Um, and so one of the things that we found is one of the best practices is working farmer-to-farmer training. Mm-hmm. Farmers learn best from other farmers. Um, and so the mentoring program that you brought up before, which is run by the Dairy Grazing Apprenticeship out in Wisconsin, um, you know, they have a very, very effective approach where they do mentoring and they teach farmers. They take an, a, a, um, an established farmer that has been in this field 
for a really long time and has a formal apprenticeship that they've developed with the Department of Labor um, to transition that knowledge from one farmer to the next. Um, you know, and there's a lot of other groups doing a lot of similar mentorship programs. Um, some of them are not. I think that one is the only one that I know that is specific on a specific commodity or type of production system. Um, you know, but in terms of the best practices, um, I, you know, you, de- you definitely need to be compensating that, um, you know, that farmer that is taking their time and knowledge, um, you know, and, and it is, you know, they're, they're kind of stepping into a professor role to the yeah. new farmer and taking them under their wings. Um, and that is something that is looked at in terms of what are the success, what are the projects that are going to be most successful, um, you know, making sure that, that you are compensating the, the folks that are essentially becoming the trainers. Um, it's very important. Yes, I would think so. And, I, you know, and, and kind of hard given how busy farmers are for, you know, at least three seasons out of the year. Um, you know, it must be hard to find the time if you're, if you're in the business. I, you know, it's like, it's a really hard job. I would, you know, I wouldn't be so eager to take on another. But on the other end, maybe there's a question, maybe do you ever find, for example, that farmers who have worked or trained with or had a, an apprentice, do they end up taking those people on as sort of permanent parts of their farming, uh, you know, family, as it were? and then end up leasing them land or anything like that? Because, like, I know a bunch of farmers, and I'm from Rhode Island, and there's a lot of farmers there that lease land. I'd say probably most of them at this point, certainly the young farms farmers, they are leasing land from other landholders. And um, in many cases, they are able to have a pretty long-term relationship um, with either the farmer or the landowner, uh, who you know gives them guidance about what to do? Do you find that that happens with any of your trainees? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the projects that we looked at, and you know, members of the National Sustainable Ag Coalition, a lot of our folks work with beginning farmers. Um, you know, and that is an investment that you're making as as a mentor to a beginning farmer that you're taking your time and energy. Um, you know, a lot of those mentors understand. Uh, the gravity of the situation and that we need to be investing in mm. who the next generation will be that will continue to um, to farm um, farm our land and feed our country. Um, you know, so I, I think that that's not that uncommon that, you know, farmers have already made this investment, either, you know, helping to connect them, open the doors for them in terms of, you know, land access. Um, I have one farmer that... Um, we just brought in here, we had a fly-in where we flew in over 20 farmers into Washington, D.C. to visit with their legislators to talk about what are the, the most important uh, programs, you know, for farmers out there as we're looking um, to the next farm bill. And one of them came in and, and talked about how she has, you know, made it part of her farm's mission to train the next generation of farmer and uh, farmers. And because she has access to land, recognizing that that is a privilege and, yeah. you know, leasing, you know, whether it's small plots of land and having it rotating so that you're, you know, kind of incubating a new farmer and, mm-hmm. and helping to connect them and, and bring them into the farming community. Um, but I, de- I definitely see that time and time again. I think that's going to be, um, you know, very much the wave of the future. Um, because Also because, like, uh, institutional investors are starting to snap up large parcels of land as well, and that kind of changes the dynamic from it being a farming family that's held a large piece of land and that has accumulated more land over the years as their, you know, neighbors sell out, and then you also have these institutional investors who are coming in and snapping up big pieces of land and then leasing those out to other farmers to, to grow typically commodity crops. But, um, you know, I could see how that might change. There's a lot, there's a lot going on in that land usage 
um, silo there that is kind of new and maybe not always so great, but sometimes really great. If it's a company, for instance, that's really dedicated to sustainable um, practices, then you can look for, you know, excellent land management and stewardship. If it's a company that doesn't care, but just wants to reap the big profits off of their soy or corn or sorghum or whatever, then, you know, they're just going to use the land without a lot of care to it, probably. But anyway, I digress. I, <laughs> I wanted to ask you about how um, once the beginners, you know, sort of get their their feet wet and say they grow their niche crop or whatever, like how, how do you get them plugged into the whole processing and distribution aspect of crops and livestock? Because certainly in livestock, uh, you know, the, the processing options are relatively few and far between because of the consolidation of the industry. And that's probably true in other aspects of farming. So how do you get, how do you train people to deal with that? Yeah, that and that I would say is something that is absolutely um, geographically specific and mm-hmm. and also commodity specific. Um, so I know that there's one organization that we looked at that has a program out in California that works with organic farmers, um, and they have a very unique approach where they have a farm incubator. So they actually own property, and they, you know, farmers go through their program and they they learn all of the skills of how do you actually grow a crop. Which one of the farmers that we brought into town last week said the growing the crop is the easy part. All of the other things are the hard part. So mm-hmm. thinking about how do you how do you run a business? How do you market it? How do you distribute it? Um, dealing with food safety regulations. Yeah. Um, you know, conserving your soil. All of these things are all part of of being a farmer, um, and so what they what they do is they they have this incubator model where they train the farmers and they give them all the skills that they need, um, and then they lease them land so they can they can really focus on the growing the crop and getting the the businesses there. But they actually have a marketing, um, you know, and distribution. I don't know if it's a food hub or a you know a distribution brand um, entity where they're able to take and aggregate the crops that are grown from their incubator, and then they're in charge of marketing it into, um, you know, I think that they're in the close to the Bay Area, and so they, ha- they definitely have markets to sell their crops, but they're able to, you know, kind of take some of that off of the beginning farmer's plate and also mentor them into these are the things that are important when you're, you know, if you're thinking about doing retail, you know, it's right. a totally different ballgame than if you're going to be growing into wholesale or, you know, if you're going to be showing up at the farmer's market. Um, and we actually found that the vast majority of projects that we looked at in this evaluation um, included some sort of a marketing training component. Um, so that's positive, and I think, you know, it, it is um, an essential. If you are going to be learning to farm, you know, absolutely knowing how to farm and doing the production production side, but farming is a business, and you know a, a lot of folks don't understand that. Um, and it is something that that we found in the best practices um, that you need to be teaching. You need to have a business plan. Um, you need to be understanding. You know what is the marketing plan? If you if you if you're not good at marketing and you don't want to do the marketing component, you don't want to show up at the farmers market. What are your other options that are going to make sense for your type of a business? Right. Um, so that's certainly something that that we did see. Um, and I think that your question on Processing is one that that comes up time and time again. Um, you know, it is not only you know. I mean, and, and that one especially is is such a regional issue. Um, you know, there are so many different laws and regulations in terms of if you want to sell across state borders, if you want to sell at the farmers market, if you're doing right. um, you know on farm processing, um, and and that is something that I know is getting a lot of attention, especially um, you know for folks that are not doing the big contract production, which most of our 
most of the meat in this country is produced under contracts right. um, through very, very big, big companies. If, if you want to be an independent producer, um, you know, that first and foremost has its own challenges. Um, and part of the challenge is actually, actually finding access to, to um, you know, the processing that, that'll meet your needs. And, um, you know, and so that's something that I think it's, it's infrastructure. Um, there, there is a network um, of small niche meat processors across the country that share best practices and, um, you know, try to understand how do we identify um, where the gaps are and how do we get the infrastructure built? Because it yeah. certainly is a, it's a gap. It's a huge gap. I mean, I've been doing this radio program for close to a decade now, and I, it's, I think the situation has somewhat improved, but I still hear, like, you know, again, as I canvass farmers in my home state, you know, where I, where I tend to talk to more farmers there than I do in New York, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> I, um, you know, that is, uh, that's the first question I ask, is where do you get your meat processed? Because a, a lot of the farming community in Rhode Island is, is definitely doing specialty meat. Um, either organic or just nice breeds, you know, just farm grazed, local, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and that is number one, the biggest problem for them is getting it processed. And if you're not playing in the big leagues, you, you know, it's, it's well nigh impossible, um, to find smaller, as you said, it's a regional thing, especially, but I mean, I bet out in the Midwest, there aren't too many smaller regional processing facilities because so many people grow into the commodity market and it goes right to a Cargill or a Smithfield processor, right? So that yeah. to me is like, that's, that's something that I feel like should be written into the farm bill too, you know, that if you want to, and I know, I think Tom Vilsack and Kathleen Merrigan were trying to make that go. Um, and didn't get very far with it, and it probably won't go very far under Sonny Purdue since he just. Did you see? By the way, I'm I, I'm going to digress for a second. But did you see that he pulled the um, the uh, the interim final rule on Gypsa, so that yes, farmers we can? Did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like what? Yeah, I mean, talk about playing very into the. Yeah, very unfortunate, and that makes it that much harder for young and beginning farmers, right? I mean, that's a, that's kind of a disastrous uh, step backwards, in my opinion. But um, what about things like getting trained in added value products? You know, like if you're, say you want to become a dairy farmer and you just, you know, selling milk at 15 cents a pound doesn't really make it work. So, you know, are there added value programs that um, young farmers can participate in through some of your projects or is that sort of too far down the road? Yeah, this is really, this is a key question and one that I've been thinking about and other folks I mean, working with beginning farmers and anybody who's concerned about the future of, you know, the food supply in this country um, is where's the next generation going to come from and the necessity to add more value to the farm. So if you think about, you know, your your typical commodity operation, um, especially what's going on in the commodity markets right now with the prices um, yeah. you know, sustained low prices for, for several years now, a lot of the folks are thinking, you know the prices are just are just going to go back up. It's the market demands. It's market swings. Um, but but we are seeing you are not going to be able to bring back the kids back to the farm just on corn and soybeans alone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know if you need to add, bring back an entire new family and support an entire new family. Um, you know on the same land base. Given uh, what's happening with our land base, um, the only solution is to be able to figure out how to add more value to that land. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, and we're seeing with commodity production, it's, it's getting increasingly harder to make a living um, on that unless you, 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 know, you get bigger and bigger, which is really, really difficult for new farmers 
entering farming. Um, and so we've been seeing a lot of interest, especially from new farmers, and how do we add value, um, you know, whether it's uh, looking at how do we, you know, look at a dairy operation and instead of just growing dairy, you know, growing um, or raising dairy cattle to sell into, you know, the commercial milk market, you know, what if we had, did on-farm processing and, you know, we did ice cream or, you know, organic or milk or, or whatever it might sure. be. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are programs out there. There's the Value-Added Producer Grant Program, which actually provides grants to farmers to do value-added enterprises on their farm. And one of the key components of that program is a feasibility study. I think that any farmer, um, and this, this, you know, this goes with any type of business mm-hmm. that you are starting, but sure. especially if you are, are thinking about starting a value-added business and or expanding into a value-added space, you need to do the feasibility study. And again, this comes back to the business side of farming. Um, you need to make sure that there is a market for that niche value-added product that you decided is going to, you know, be the solution, um, you know, and, and make sure that your farm can be a profitable operation. Um, so making, but those cost money to be yeah. able to do a real feasibility study and ensure that that, that is a successful um, venue for your business. Um, so, so we're definitely seeing a lot of demand, especially a lot of demand um, from new farmers and, you know, organics is one of this, but even, you know, conventional farmers and folks that are, are getting back into um, taking over a farm that's conventional, a lot of folks are looking at organic simply because of the price premium. Sure. So prices, absolutely, they are going to, you know, they, they, they still are a big influencer in terms of the decisions uh, that, that farmers make. Hmm. But then there's the whole issue of like, if say, for example, somebody decides to go organic. I mean, now organic has been kind of co-opted by big agriculture and those and even those prices are starting to be depressed. Um, so it's, you know, to me, it's like the whole thing turns the whole thing of farm, the whole industry of farming turns upon the fact that the farming sector is so intensely consolidated, meaning that there are so few players at the top who control so much of the resources, whether they be land or what, you know, how the crops are processed or how they're distributed. Same thing with the livestock. I mean, it's just, this to me is the, you know, the, the, the biggest roadblock to young farmers making a success or any farmer for that matter, making a success at this point. And when you were talking a minute ago about um, how commodity prices have been depressed for several years, well, that there's no accident to that. That's, you know, that is, that has a lot to do with the, the grip that big players have on c- manipulating the commodities markets. And um, those are the things that I, the sort of systemic things that I would like to see addressed in um, legislation going forward, but certainly that ain't going to happen in this administration. Um, we're going to wrap it up here, but I want to just, just do you have a feeling about whether or not your program will be renewed under this new administration? I mean, given Sonny Purdue's um, <clears throat> current track record, does it seem likely uh, or does it, are you going to slip under the radar because it's not that much money or what do you think will happen? Yeah, so uh, fortunately or, or unfortunately, um, the administration uh, it plays less of an important role in terms of the Beginning Farmer and Rancher Development Program, which we've been talking about. This program is dictated by Congress. Oh. So the, the most important thing to remember is this program, which has a successful track record, which we found is training new farmers, is creating a national infrastructure, is a game changer, is absolutely needed to be part of the solution of training the next generation of farmers, this program shuts down next September unless Congress reauthorizes the program and provides additional funding. Um, They are having those funding debates here in Washington, D.C., 
right now. Um, the House is moving forward. The Senate is moving forward with drafting their bill. Um, and it, it remains to be seen whether or not this program will, will make it into the bill. I think that there is more recognition this time around in this farm bill debate that our farmers aren't getting any younger, and we're going to need to figure this. We're going to need to figure this out and scale up our investments. Yeah. Uh, so I think that there is support for the program. However, this is the first time that we are writing a farm bill under a Republican administration signed into law by a Republican um, administration uh, in a very, very long time. Yeah. Um, so there's going to have to be very, very hard decisions in terms of what gets funding, what doesn't get funding. Um, this is one of the programs that. We at NSAC have been calling one of the, one of the stranded programs back in 2013 uh-huh. when Congress didn't reach a deal on the Farm Bill. This program, along with tons of other programs that support sustainable agriculture, completely shut down for a year. Um, we cannot afford to have that happen again. Um, so we're working really hard with our members and anybody that cares about new farmers, that cares about the future of agriculture in this country, needs to let their legislators know that this is an effective program and it needs to continue. Right. Okay. Well, thank you for throwing down that gauntlet. People, (laughs) get on the phone. (laughs) Write your legislators. Julie, thank you so much for an excellent interview. You're such a wonderful and articulate spokesperson for your program. I really appreciate your time. And thanks to my sponsor, Bob's Red Mill, without whom, well, I know I personally would be nothing. And I just want to remind listeners that this is our end of the year fundraiser. We have from now until December 31st to raise $150,000 to keep this station on the air and to keep programs like mine and like some of the many other extraordinary programs on this on this air, including some new ones. We have a new Spanish language program called Buen Limón. Uh, We have Japan Eats for people who love Japanese food and cooking and style. Uh, Cooking Issues with the one and only Dave Arnold, one of my favorites. A Taste of the Past with Linda Palaccio, who does food history. Fantastic. Ferment About It for you pickle freaks. Um, The Farm Report with a wonderful Aaron Fairbanks, former director. I mean, there's just no end to great programming. So please, please go to the website, hit the donate button, become a member of HRN. You get all kinds of lovely little VIP perks for doing that. If you own a business or want to become a business sponsor or a business partner with us, we can send you that information. It's a low cost and really effective way of reaching literally millions of people on our air. We have millions of listeners. So please do subscribe and join our family um, because without Heritage Radio Network, I personally would pretty much cease to exist. It's my entire identity. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not that pathetic, but really, I do love doing my program. And if you don't pony up, I might not be able to. (laughs) So hit the donate button and uh, have a wonderful holiday, everybody. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to my wonderful engineer, Dave, for um, listening for two two hours of programming today. (laughs) So long for now. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. 
and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.